Hey, welcome to Performance Anxiety. I'm your host, Mark. And before we get started with this show, I want to thank our sponsor, AKG, for sending us their Podcaster Essentials Kit. It comes with an amazing set of headphones and an incredible Lira mic. If you've ever thought about starting your own podcast, this is a high-quality, low-cost way to do it. Bob Lord does a lot of things. He's the CEO of Parma Recordings. He's the bassist for the long-running, genre-defying band Dreadnought. And now he can add solo artists to his list. He has recorded what can only be described as possibly the most eclectic album of the year called Playland Arcade. It's filled with surfing western sounds, orchestral snippets, and 8-bit jams. Bob also talks about the future of classical music and artists. It's a lot funnier than it sounds. And there's a whole lot more in this show. Follow Bob at Bob Lord Music on social media. Pick up the album Playland Arcade if you want a fun album. Follow us at Performance ANX. Help us get in front of more folks with five-star reviews and ratings. We accept coffee at ko-fi.com slash performance anxiety. Merch is at performanceanx.threadless.com. So get your quarters out and let's get into Playland Arcade with Bob Lord on Performance Anxiety, part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. My name is Bob Lord. I am a recovering bass player, uh, composer, and CEO of a company called Prima Recordings. I'm also a co-founder and bassist for a band called Dreadnought, and now a solo artist. Uh, and my new record, Playland Arcade, comes out on 427. That is the 27th of April, and I encourage you all to check it out and listen to it. And I am here on the Performance Anxiety Podcast to share a little bit about what I do, and hopefully um, you'll enjoy it. So thanks so much. I'm an early riser. I'm usually up around four o'clock. Oh my um, God. Yeah. So, so, uh, <laughs> so by this time of day, I've, I've pulled out massive clumps of my hair and you know, <laughs> just out of stress. So it, has to, it has to regrow overnight so I can look, look good. I was going to say, you've got an amazing barber then because <laughs> the pictures I've seen, you look like you have a full set, full head of hair. So I'm impressed. I, I, I do. My college ID, I, I saw it a long time ago. It's someplace buried in here, but from UVM. And I looked at the picture and I realized that my hair was so huge, it didn't even fit in the frame. And it was like substantially <laughs> outside the frame. It was oh funny. God. I'm in no rush, by the way. I'm at the end of my day, so uh, so take your time. Okay, good. <laughs> Actually, thing? that's a lie. There's going to be a martini and some some shit posting on social media when I get done. But oh, still. awesome. Well, <laughs> I've got my uh, couple fingers of Knob Creek right now, so I'm good. There you go. Good man. I am ready. Uh, what is going on with this? Oh, the hell with it. I'll just I'll just wing that part of it. How's, how's that? That's, that's a good plan. I'll just wing there you it. go. That's, that, that's all I do. I, I've learned the, the more I prepare, the worse I do. Yeah. <laughs> and it, you know, it's, it's kind of funny you mention that because I've, I've come to the realization that the, the more I worry about being prepared for guests, the, the less I have to worry because it, the conversation just kind of flows. It just kind of goes. But- that's cool. That's cool. Yeah, I've, I've just I've learned my lesson over the years. Like, it's funny when I'm learning music, like if I learn it off of the paper, I'm never going to get off the paper. If I learn it by ear, it's always going to be in my ear. And I just like once I learn something, it just, uh, you know, I, I it's in my head and uh, and I go with it. I, I had I wrote this blog post. I, I pushed it out today. And uh, I guess I've been like, quote unquote, writing it mentally for a while. Yeah. I hadn't even really consciously strung anything together. And I just sat down and just went, 
<laughs> it, all, it basically all came out in one one lump, you know. Oh man, it's, nice. It's it's just, but that's kind of how I, I I do stuff, even like writing. You know, stuff processes in the background quite a bit, and then once you get around to it, it's like, oh yeah, it was actually in there the whole time. Okay. Cool. <laughs> oh gosh, ooh, that Knob Creek tastes good. Oh man, you know, uh, I I gave up alcohol for Lent, so this is like one of the first drinks I've had in a in a long time. Nice. I've I've been I've been trying to stay away on the weeknights, you know, just because uh, well, because I I gotta get up early. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. It, it, I I remember a few years ago though, I gave up booze for like a month and a half. I almost say twelve pounds. It was hysterical, you know. Uh, it's crazy. Oh, sorry for the typo last night. That was oh, I could have sworn I wrote tomorrow evening and not tonight evening. So. That was wicked funny because I'm I'm like such a freak about my schedule, you know. Like literally, when, when people say when I say I'm going to call someone at whatever time, I sit there and I wait until you know the the hand hits the the twelve. Yep. And then right at that moment, I hit the final number of the button. Like hey, it's, it's, I'm I'm nuts like that. I so do that when too I see with something this. like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, and if and I, if if I see something like that, I'm just like, holy fuck, did I fuck it up? And it's like I immediately go into only only child mode. Yep. You know, like. You know, you did it wrong. You're wrong. Like, no. <laughs> so, it, it was a relief when I found out I wasn't fucked up. So oh, it was great. Right. Thank you. That's well. Th- I wish I could say that was the worst typo I've ever done with a guest, but it's not. I, <laughs> if you, uh, I don't know if you had a chance to go back and look at any of the episodes, but one of the ones I, I had was this uh, chef, uh, Chef Selena Tio, and okay. she's amazing. I, I love her to death, and uh, I, I've reached out to her because she's uh, she was on Top Chef Masters and Iron oh. Chef America and uh, she was in the final four of Top Chef Masters and almost beat Michael Simon on uh, on Iron Chef America and uh, she owns a, a restaurant in Kansas City and one of her employees was in a band one of her bartenders was in a band that I had uh, had on the podcast a band called Vast Robot Armies and the guy's name is John. He's like, man, you got to have my boss on. Sure. Who's your boss? So he's explaining who she was. So I'm like, all right, well, ask her if she's interested. And then I'll, you know, I'll take it from there. So he, he, he asked her and, and he's like, all right, here's her phone number. Just shoot her a text and, and you know, tell her that I, I gave you the number. So I sent her a text and uh, I, was, I was like, yeah, you know, uh, you know, we, I usually record on the, on uh, weekdays because I have a day job and well, weeknights, 8 p.m. Eastern. But if that's an issue with the restaurant, you know, weekends are always an option. Something to that effect. And it, But it changed yep. the word always to anal. Oh, no. So, like, my first text to her, it's like, um, if not, we can, we can uh, also on the weekend or something. And it changed it to, I can do it anal on the weekend. Oh, and oh it's so it, brutal. And this is the first... You know, communication I've had with this lady. She didn't respond immediately. And so I'm, I'm like, okay, well, let me see. And I read it. I'm like, <gasps> and I said, oh, okay, well, I've, I've screwed this up. So I just like, I'm just going to lean into it. So I, I replied. I said, I said, I'm, I'm sorry. I don't, that was a typo. I apologize. I always do anal on the weekdays. Oh my god! Oh my god! Oh my god! This is like a Basil Fawlty. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so she she just responded with the the crying laughing emoji and said, "Oh, yeah, no problem. Weekdays are fine." 
Oh my God, it's great. That's <laughs> I, great. I figured, That's great. I figured she's either going to be a good sport. I've either lost her already or she's going to be a good sport. So I've, I've, I leaned into it. I, I agree with that totally. It really tells you where you stand very quickly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You bring <laughs> anal into it. It's, you know, immediately exactly. where you stand. <laughs> exactly. So great. what I like to do is to find out, obviously you're here for a reason, you know, you're a successful musician and CEO, but I want to find out how you got to that point. So what I like to do is find out where you came from and how you got into music in the first place. Was there a lot of music in the house growing up or was that something that, that you're the black sheep of the family, you're the only one that, that was really into music? You know, there wasn't a ton of music in my house growing up. My, my parents were, I think like all parents of my generation, they were into the stuff that was on the radio at the time. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, I, I recall hearing a lot of music when I would go shopping with my mom when I was like four or five years old. And I think that was one of the reasons for my very early hatred of Steely Dan, which of course I've not come completely full circle. <laughs> okay, but good. every time I go into like a Marshalls or a TJ Maxx and I'd hear Steely Dan, I just cringe. Oh. But, but uh, I, I think, I think I got a lot of, um, a lot of my music from uh, my cousin, Jeff, who was a, a real kind of prog rock fan way back when. So I heard huh. Rush, you know, I wouldn't say I heard Tom Sawyer the day it came out, but not, not that long after. Oh, cool. Um, yeah, and then and then also my, my best friend Jeff, uh, a different Jeff, who grew up <laughs> with me. Uh, we grew up together in Andover, Mass, and we're both only only children. Uh, I'm of Italian descent; he's Jewish, so like very similar kind of upbringing in a lot of ways. Oh and, uh, yeah, yeah. And, and his dad had a huge record collection that we would just go through when we were kids. So that's where I, I got like my earliest contact with all my favorite stuff: the Beatles, the Who, uh, you know, all, all this kind of great uh, 60s, 70s stuff. When did you start learning to play music? Was that something that you would, you'd asked to do, or was it something you were forced into lessons for? Uh, no, absolutely not. So I was like an artsy kid growing up. I was always into drawing and you know, reading and making sounds and whatever. I was, I was into that stuff. Uh, comic books were a super early passion, and uh -huh. they still are. I lo love, love comics, and I love to read. But it was never anything that was kind of pushed on me. And I, I did kind of, you know, muck around a little bit when I was a kid with, with keyboards and different kinds of sounds and stuff, but nothing really stuck until, uh, until I heard the Who play. And I mean, I, I'd, I'd heard their music before and I'd come into contact with it, of course, but, uh, you know, when I really saw the, the group, not live, but, but um, on videotapes and such, mm -hmm. it was like, well, wait a minute. Now, now this is what I want to do with the rest of my life. <laughs> and I was, you know, I was a little kid. So I think I was 12 years old and I, I picked up the bass. A lot of my friends, my buddy Jeff that I just mentioned included, um, were all starting to pick up guitar. And yeah. um, it seemed like the right thing to do. Plus, uh, of the members of the Who, it really was John and Twistle that I, I saw. And I'm like, oh, man, that's that's a cool sound. Wow. And, okay. Uh, yeah. And, and of course, Pete Townsend too, you know, hearing his, um, his guitar and hearing two of them in that interplay, uh, that's really what kind of made me do it. Interesting. Yeah. You don't hear about too many people saying the bass is, is what they were first drawn to. That's really interesting. Well, even as a, as a younger listener, I, I was really into the Beatles as a kid. I got those, uh, you know, Beatles blue and red compilation albums. Yep. Uh, and I ripped through that blue one, like multiple copies of that tape, but, <laughs> but, uh, but I, I always loved the sound of McCartney's bass, even as a kid, like, cause usually, especially in the later material, it's mixed so forward oh, and yeah. it's so it's so round and beautiful. And, and it even glistens a little bit, which a lot of bass doesn't right. Or in that era, cause of the recording technique. Right. Right. Yeah. So I, I was predisposed and then you hear it was still, who's like, 
turning the treble up to 10, turning the mids up to 10. It's like, <laughs> I love that. What is that? How do you do that? So when did you start playing in bands? Who Were you playing with uh, your buddy Jeff? Was that how you started playing out? Yeah, uh, yeah, and and my buddy um, Ed Jordy, who is in a band called The Band of Heathens, and uh, also a band called Trigger Hippie. The drummer uh, is Steve Gorman from the Black Crows. So you know, we, we oh, had like a really kind of we yeah, we had like a really cool crew of, of kids when I was young, and we just started playing together right away. And it's weird because we all took it seriously right away. And oh, wow. I, I say I say this frequently, but in Andover, Mass, in my graduating kind of classes, and when I was in high school, we had a ton of kids come out of that um, that era that have all gone into really meaningful artistic careers. And um, it's an amazing thing when you stop and think about it, that at this really young age, you're all kind of working together, collaborating, you know, competing. Uh, yeah. And it's all these wonderful things mixed together. And um, and yeah, it made us all better musicians. And it's really weird because Ed and I still work together. My buddy, Will Daly, who also went to school with us at the same time, same class, you know, we're working together and it's just, it, it goes to show that the people that are involved with you at a formative state, you know, your, your trajectories, they, they go in different directions, but those angles are never so important or severe as they are early on. And those set us off on these kind of these paths. Right. And uh, it's just interesting to see how it all, it all goes. But yeah, we started playing right away. I played my first gig when I was you know 12 or 13, produced my first recording, such as it was when I was 14, did oh, my first wow. mini mini tour when I was like 15 and a half. Oh my gosh. Uh, so, and, you know, but by mini tour, I mean, we went to New York for the weekend, but still <laughs> it, was, it was really cool. Right. Hey, you know, anything outside your, your immediate township. Definitely. That's definitely. a tour. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, it's crazy. Cause the, the kids in the band that played the first gig that I ever played at, we're all still, we're all still working professionally. It's, it's a crazy thing. That's amazing. You know, and I've, I've found that happens occasionally. I, I've, I'm trying to remember who I've had one or two other guests where they were in early bands and everybody in that band is still in the business, but it does not yeah. happen very often. It's, it's really amazing when I hear that story. And, you know, it's really gratifying because when I talk to my buddies who, you know, we grew up doing this or, or who've been in the business for a really, really long time, there's a, a method of communication that's possible. And, and plus, you know each other really well. And you've yeah. all been through the, the hammers of goddamn hell. Yeah. So, so there's that, 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 that kind of commonality that makes you speak the same language. And, um, and it's, it's just interesting how, how many people, um, you know, kind of fall off. And, and it's okay. I tell a ton of people in my, my quote-unquote day job as a you know, CEO of a classical music company. Yeah. I tell a ton of people, listen, you, you don't have to do this professionally. It's not incumbent upon you to make it your living or your vocation. It's okay if music is just a fun thing. It just so happens yeah. for me. It's a complete fucking obsession. So yeah, I I know this. I did that with photography. So uh, sure, that was that was my thing. But oh. all right, so you are you mentioned that you are the CEO of, of a classical music record. Late was is it a, a label? Or how does it work? Because it's like studio without a studio and. Yeah, in, in, interesting analysis. Yeah, you you basically hit the nail on the head. It's everything that a music company could possibly do, <laughs> in in a way. Uh, and so we're we're like a production company, a parent company um, of a number of record labels. We have a creative agency. We do a lot of work in in studio production, um, and also you know kind of release commercially all the work that we do. Uh, but we have departments in graphic design, publicity, uh, royalty administration, publishing. Um, oh, wow. It's it's a it's a crazy kind of uh, vertically integrated company to use an old eighties term, right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, and it's interesting because 
I, I did the rock and roll thing, right? I tried to do the rock and roll thing. I mean, I still do the rock and roll thing. My band's been around for 25 years, my band yeah. Red Knot. Yeah. But, you know, in, in, in high school and getting into college, all my experiences in that time, which were pre-professional, semi-professional, however you want to look at it, it's a it's a, a, a grayscale, right? You kind of ease into this business. You don't even know it. Right. Um, but but all those all those experiences of having to be the booking agent, having to lick the envelopes and send out the the, the newsletters, having to staple gun up the posters, um, to, <laughs> yeah. to, you know, yeah. all these things that, that that people don't do anymore. Uh, all that it kind of informed the way I did stuff. So I just was always doing an awful lot of the coverage of all the functions that one would do, right? It wasn't just, I'm going to pick up my bass and go play the gig when someone calling me. Right. I, I mean, I'm starting the gig, I'm managing the gig, I'm publicizing the gig. And that kind of carried through um, into this kind of phase of my life in this this uh, Parma Recordings company where um, it's natural for me to, to, to do that and to be not only an advocate for myself and my own company, but to advocate on behalf of other people, other artists, uh, other creators. And wow. It's it's been an interesting career path, I can tell you that. <laughs> now, were you always interested in classical and orchestral music? No, absolutely not. I mean, not beyond Bugs Bunny or, or Tom and Jerry. Right? <laughs> hey. I, I think and it, I think it's fascinating how many people first heard that music in in that kind of bracket, in that that age bracket. Mr. Rogers, right? My first uh, introduction to jazz was because of Mr. Rogers and Joe Negley. My first introduction wow. to classical music was was Warner Brothers, and I, it's hysterical. Like. You always think about the bad guy theme when, like, somebody's tied up on the railroad tracks. The beautiful, you know, blonde is on the railroad tracks, and the bad guy's throwing his mustache. Well, yep. you know, you always hear that play. Well, that's the Earl King by Schubert, right? <laughs> I mean, it's 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 this classical music. <laughs> You just didn't know it at the time. And so for me, listening um, to music, I just kind of always followed my ear, right? So I, I started off listening to rock and roll. I got more into more sophisticated prog rock, like Yes, Rush, like I said before. Um, yeah. And then, you know, began to go deeper and deeper and deeper. So by the time I heard uh, 20th century classical, which is what really hooked me, Stravinsky, Aaron Copeland, Bela Bartok, Bernstein, William Schumann, these kinds of guys. Uh, by the time I, I, I got to that, I was completely prepped. I was primed. The thing is, most people come at it from le learning how to play, learning how to play Bach or Mozart or whatever the piano when they're three years old. Right. And it was the exact opposite for me. I just literally was like, "Huh, that sounds interesting. What's next? Huh, that's interesting. What's next?" And next thing I knew, I was in this world where I couldn't reverse engineer it. You know, I could yeah. put on live at Leeds and figure out the bass parts and not have a problem. I mean, it's you know, it's just yeah. that's what it is. But yeah. by the time you get to Stravinsky, you know, doing it by ear, reverse engineering, it's just not going to work. So, uh, wow. so that was, that was kind of the Rubicon for me. And I said, all right, I, I, I got to buckle down and figure this out. Man. So, so your introduction to classical was Carl Stalling. Yeah, basically. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, you know, um, I loved for, really, I love Scott Bradley, the guy that did all the, uh, Tom and Jerry, oh, um, yeah. all the original stuff. Right. Yes. And I, I spoke with, um, someone a long time ago, one of our artists, uh, her, her uncle, was I think one of the I believe he for a time was the concertmaster in the MGM orchestra that was doing the recordings under um, under Scott Bradley who was the wow. conductor and the composer and the conductor and what I learned which I didn't know was that Bradley would spend a tremendous amount of time writing these kind of prefab cues so what he had was an island like islands of scores right these okay. little kind of sections and such which he would then kind of, you know, arranged, not necessarily on the spot, but he would be mixing and matching and saying this to that, to this, to that, to that, to that. 
like a kind of a very early form of adaptive music, which we now see in video games, Fortnite or whatever. And so I didn't know that at the time, but looking back, it's like, that is immensely complicated material. When you listen to Tom and Jerry, it's like you're going insane. Yeah, it is. this is great stuff. So yeah, so I, I always loved it, and um, and where I am now, it kind of is the culmination of my Tom and Jerry listening. Oh, that is amazing! I remember back in the mid '90s or so, they came out with a a, a CD, the, the Carl Stalling Project, and it was a it, it was like a compilation of a whole bunch of the cartoon music that he had done. It was it yeah. was wonderful. I don't think I have it anymore, unfortunately, but it was it was awesome. You could just drive in your car and start and listen to cartoon music all day long. Oh man, I, I'm obsessed with cartoon music. I'm really obsessed with television theme songs. I, I've I've been obsessed my whole life, and uh, I oh, mean even man. to the ex- even to the extent that my band Dreadnought, uh, we we put together um, an evening length essentially uh, a suite of TV theme songs called Dreadnought She Wrote, oh, which wow. we've um, we, we've performed a couple times. But it's it's really something. I'll tell you, <laughs> the audience the audience likes it. When did you pick up the eight string bass? Going back to you playing music, when how did you get into such a huge complex instrument well you know the eight string bass is such a cool instrument because it's like the the bass version of a 12 string guitar so you've got this kind of like the, like the, the strings are doubled you've got the octaves it's this kind of massive bell-like piano-esque sound and uh i loved it since i was a kid because of guys like ant whistle um in mm-hmm. hearing them play that thing and i looked and looked and looked and searched and searched for years and years and uh, i finally found one in australia and I had it shipped to where I live, and I explained to the guy, listen, you know, I've wanted this thing for years, and it's the exact make I wanted. I, oh, wow. I, I play uh, these bases called Alembic bases. I love them. Oh, okay. And, yeah, uh, yeah. and I, I said, listen, this is how you ship it. I, I gave all the instructions, right? This thing shows up in my front door. I'll never forget it. It was a Saturday morning. Shows up in my front door. It's just a case, a guitar case, and the thing is huge. You could, <laughs> I, I could fit you and me in it, right? It's so huge. And, and it's wrapped in one layer of tiny bubble wrap. It oh. doesn't even cover the whole case. Like, like the top and the bottom are exposed. The <laughs> handle is exposed. And it's just like one layer. And I look at it and I go, oh, fuck. And, you know, <laughs> I don't care about the, the, the money. I mean, I don't care about the insurance. I'll get the money back. I want the base. Yeah. And, and I opened it up. And not only was there, like, no packing, no stuffing, nothing in it. It was just sitting there in, this, in, in, the, in the case. Oh and amazingly enough, it was in perfect shape. And I just sat there. I, I, look, I, I, I looked up to the sky and I just went, Mwah. Yeah, and uh, and ever since then, it's it's really been my ba- one of my real bases of choice in the studio, and I just I love the sound you can get out of it, and and playing in a trio, you know, we all like to make a lot of sound, right? And uh, and that helps with that endeavor. That you know, I'm I'm glad you you described it that the bass itself that way because I'm not I'm an amateur musician. I play I just bang around on an old guitar in my room, and that's that's as far as it's ever gone. So. When I hear eight string bass, I'm thinking something that that's going to look like a Chapman stick or something. But right, 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 right. when you said it's it's like a twelve string guitar, instantly I knew exactly what you're talking about. And that that's I didn't think of it that way at all. I thought it was just going to be some monstrosity of of a handheld <laughs> instrument. But I, those things scare me, man. I see people on like Instagram. Well, first of all, I I, I try to not go on Instagram anymore because it just depresses <laughs> me. I see these kids who have techniques. I mean, uh, it makes me feel like you know, <laughs> so inadequate. You know, uh, well, at least I can run a company. Um, yeah. But, but, <laughs> but like, I see these instruments that look like they're attacking the people that are playing them, and I, I go ah. Uh, uh, 
you know, I'm still a simple guy. I'm a four string player. I'm a four string fretted player. I, I can muck around on a bunch of other things, but, but that's my, my bag. And, uh, and I play with a pick and I've always played with a pick since I was a kid again, because of that whistle and, and Chris Squire from, uh, from yes. Yes. And, and all these guys. And, uh, and so it's just, it's a very unbased playerly thing to do. And, and, you know, anyone who's heard my music, they know, you know, I'm an extraordinarily unbased playery musician as a bass player. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I'm, I'm the anti-bassist in a lot of ways. Interesting. Interesting. Well, as the anti-bassist, how did, how did Dreadnought actually get started? Did you found the band? Or was it just a, a group of guys jamming together and said, Hey, let's just play out. How did it yeah. come together? Ah, it's a good question. So, um, so I went to school up in Vermont. I went to the University of Vermont for a couple of years, and after leaving high school, where playing in six bands at a time, we're all we're all gigging. I mean, we, you know, we were really doing stuff, and and it was just an amazing time. And there was all this just great creativity going around, and and we're recording and and playing, and you know, and playing and and simultaneously in all these different styles of bands and hardcore and soul and all this stuff. So. I had this band in, in high school with my buddy Ed that I mentioned earlier. And we were like, I don't even know, it was like a 10 or 12 piece band. We had wow. like you know, guitars, bass, drums, backup singers, horns. And, 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 we're, and this is, you know, a bunch of high school kids doing doing soul music. It was really a ton of fun. And uh, and coming off of that, you know, we were just doing like covers and stuff. But I had my own original bands in, in high school. And we were just starting to, to really kind of find our way. And I thought, okay, I'll go to college. I'll go up to UVM and it's going to be a great music scene up there. I've heard all about it. This band fish is blowing up and all yeah. that stuff. Right. And so I go up there and, and, you know, I mean, Burlington's an amazing place and I love it. Um, I have but, heard that I've, I had one band from Burlington on uh, vacant lots and they love it up there. It's a marvelous place. It's awesome, but it's really isolated, right? Like you yes. don't have a huge, a huge pool of, of places to play. Right. So, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, after a couple of years, it was just kind of just not really working for me musically at all. And uh, and I I called my buddy Ed and I said, "How's it going for you?" He's just like, "Meh." And he said, "How's it going for you?" I, I said, "Meh." Yeah. And uh, and I figured, well, what if I transfer down to the University of New Hampshire where um, where he was going to school? And and a ton of my buddies from high school, elementary school, uh, middle school, et cetera, they're all going to school there as well. And and we still talk. In fact, as I was getting on the phone with you. Right now, one of those buddies was was sending me emails repeatedly of uh, of Far Side cartoons. Great, oh, stop sending me emails. I'm doing an interview right now, dude. Uh, and, <laughs> and so, and so anyway, so I transferred down there, and that was 25 years ago, which is where I am right now. And I started Dreadnought 25 years ago. Uh, immediately after that, and it was really Ed and I started to play out. Um, we met a drummer named Rick, who is of course the drummer for Dreadnought, and. And a few other folks that we said, hey, why don't we start the play? So we started off as a bigger kind of, you know, I think we're six or seven guys okay. uh, doing um, the, the kind of college, you know, college thing. Yeah. And playing gigs and traveling around and drinking beers and having a great time. And we eventually kind of settled down into a group of three. Ed, Ed went off to his own thing. Um, other guys in the band also went off and did their own thing. And, and we brought on a guy named Justin around the year 1999 or so, Justin Walton. And so... Okay. His band that he had kind of merged with me and Rick and the stuff that we were doing, and then the three of us went off and and and, and did our thing together. So the first record we put out after a couple of years of playing together was called The American Standard, and that was in 2001, so 20 years ago, uh, this June. <laughs> Thank you. 
from that point on, we just kind of um, kind of kept moving. So yeah, that's how it all began. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsors. So how did you guys come up with the name Dreadnought? That's a oh, great yeah, okay. name. Oh, no, it's a horrible name. Everybody, <laughs> I love it's it. terrible. Everybody spells it wrong. Uh, wow. There's many, there, there, come to find out there's many of them in the world, although we were, we were uh, I think, maybe the second. There was an, a Dreadnought in Australia before us, although I still propose we have a, a Battle Royale for the, the naming rights. <laughs> although, although based on the condition of my Dreadnought, I'm not sure we would even get in the ring. Uh, but, but, yeah, uh, you also don't want to screw around with, with too many Aussies. They're, they're a tough group of people. They're a tough group. They're a tough group, you know, but uh, yeah, you know, it, it's kind of, as you said before, a bunch of guys, you know, we got together and we're like, all right, oh man. Okay. So we have a gig and we were getting ready for the gig and the gig was live radio at WUNH in the, on the college radio station. And we, we didn't have a name <laughs> and we were sitting there. And so uh, at the time, what we were doing for the, for this, this radio performance was just like acoustic guitars, me on electric bass, percussion, blah, blah, blah. And so it was like, Let's just call it Dreadnought because he was playing his Dreadnought shaped Martin guitar. Nice. And we, and we just went, okay, fine. And that's it. We, went, we played the gig and, and that's it. God, you know, I hear that story so often. It's, it's amazing how many times it happened and then the name sticks. Yeah. Like, this name is just a placeholder. We'll think about it later. And then you just get gig after gig lined up and it's, it's, that's what it is. I think right there you have really identified what life is yeah. it's everybody's saying oh no no this is just temporary and the next thing you know right 25 years have passed and we still haven't come up with our real name yet yeah exactly yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> well Every, everything is only temporary oh yeah well i i went and tried to go back to listen and listen to as much as i could but i mean your discography is you know that's like nearly a thousand recording and production credits. So I apologize for probably missing a couple here, (laughs) but I did get a chance to go back and listen to uh, the vast majority of the dreadnought discography. And what I love about it is that the band kind of sounds like if Frank Zappa had joined. Yes. Hmm. Especially songs like the badger or taking a ride with the fat man. There's just the, seriousness of of the of yes in the music but with but with the humor of zappa in in the, in the lyrics and it kind of creeps into the music too So I kind of, that's the best way I could think of, if, if somebody were to ask me what Dreadnought sounded like today, that's what I would say. If, if, if Yes had Frank Zappa writing the music. It's a really good way of putting it, you know, and I think I've, I've heard similar. I've heard, you know, Willie Nelson thrown into that mix. I've heard Dixie <laughs> you know, this kind of stuff. Um, yeah, listen, man, you know, the weird thing about Dreadnought is that we are a genre of one and we are simultaneously the absolute best and the absolute worst in that genre. <laughs> and, 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 uh, and it's, it's an amazing thing to be able to say that, right? Yeah. Because it, it, the, the music really defies description. And, and I think it's very much the product of uh, us being in the same room 
and wanting to laugh. I, I just want to laugh in my life, in my work, everything. I really, I try and smile. You can probably hear it as I'm speaking. Like I, I smile when I talk. Yes. I, I try and have fun. Right. And, uh, and with the dreadnought stuff, you know, as I think I said to you in a text message last night, I mean, you know, we sound like a, a hammer in, in a washing machine, right? right. Like, it's like, <laughs> it's just, <laughs> so I don't think that, that commercial success was ever either in the cards or necessarily our intent. And in fact, I, I recall one gig, I recall one gig where we got done flying. I think we're in the road someplace, rhetoric, and someone walked up to us in, in, in with all earnestness, not a shred of irony said to us, why would you make music like this? You know, oh. like, <laughs> like, like oh, you know, if you have any intent of attracting people, why would you do this? And the answer is because it pleases me. And, yes. and I think, yeah. <laughs> I think, I think uh, it's okay to be selfish. I think Dreadnought is a great example of that. And I think that, you know, the audience that you really should be trying to please is yourself and, and your collaborators and your peers and your bandmates. And, oh, yeah. we, and, and we please ourselves. And if other people find it humorous and, and enjoyable, well, then, then that's great. But, but I do think that from the kind of stylistic um, and technical standpoint, you, you kind of hit on something. One, we really do like odd architecture musically. We do like complex stuff. Yeah. We do like really unusual interlocking sounds. I think that... Um, we, we take a page from the Queen kind of book in terms of our use of the studio when we are orchestrating our own material, for example. And we also really just want to have fun and to be audacious musically and to do stuff that is just going to make you chuckle. Like I think of like Bo Legba on Hard Charging, for example. Yes. It's a re really like minimalist, groovy, funky thing with this weird Steely Dan kind of fusion vibe with that's nonsense what, lyrics, right? That's like, exactly you know, what I was thinking. What we like to do is to, is to shove all of our influences into a blender and, and see what it tastes like today. Well, it's it's crazy. I was listening to Have a Drink with Dreadnought, the, the song originally. Yeah. Uh, I listened to the EP afterwards, but I, I, I'm listening to it and I'm, I'm listening to it at work and I just kind of stopped because I realized I had no idea what was going on. I mean, <laughs> musically, it was, it, it was great. I, I was really enjoying it, but then I was... I was hearing the lyrics and I don't know what the hell's going on. There's baby polar bears, and ponchos, <laughs> drinks being poured. And apparently it's all happened to me before. Correct. Yeah. But, but I had no idea what the hell was going on, but it was, it was so much fun to listen to. And I'm a, you know, it, it, I was just going to say, it's kind of like, um, you know, when you go into the museum and you see some type of phantasmagorical, you know, fantasy landscape that clearly was going on in somebody else's brain. <laughs> right. and, and, and you're just trying to find something that you can identify with, something you can latch on to. And if you do, if you find that thing and you hold on tight, it's a hell of a ride, right? Like oh, that's, God, yeah. that's, that's our goal. Well, I'm a huge fan of Gaudy Baubles and Express Delight. Those two songs were just blown away. I mean, I mean, I'm actually equal parts in awe and laughing throughout the entire hard charging album but especially that's the way you do it your way yes that song just the way you did that destroyed me uh, the, the vocals just killed me 
<laughs> you know, I'm glad. I really, I'm really happy that you appreciate that. It, it, it's nice to talk to somebody who clearly has a sick, fucked up sense of humor. Yeah. <laughs> it's always a relief. You know, it takes one to know one, as Fred yeah, Knott would say. Exactly. Uh, but, you know, again, that's one of those things like where we just were in the basement. And I, I, I remember when we wrote those tunes in those three, and, and it was like the, I remember I, I had a, a meal and it was rabbit three ways, right? It's like, the little, Ooh. the little rabbit leg and the little rabbit breast and the little rabbit brain. And I looked at that and I'm like, first of all, am I going to eat that fucking brain? Yeah. It looks like a walnut. <laughs> Second of all, that would be a cool idea for, for some tunes. And, and we sat down and we ripped those three out in like an hour, but wow. it's only when you, when you get in the studio and you really begin to have some fun with it and you begin to say, well, how far are we going to push this? Right. Yeah. And our, our theory is Generally speaking, you know, bend it, bend it, bend it till it breaks, and then maybe go one step back if we feel like it. <laughs> right? I like that. <laughs> if we feel like it. <laughs> one of my favorite tracks is on the Have a Drink EP, uh, Surface Raid. incredible you're but i do get, want to tell you that your tone on everything you've done is amazing it's like you're like the peanut butter of bassists <laughs> it goes with banana it goes with jelly it, it it does. Well, yeah. you've got this your crunchy tone is just as beautiful as the smooth tone oh i really appreciate that so it, you know I, I i was gonna say like i spend a lot of time thinking about how to structure stuff in the studio and i think you know, we'll, we'll get to it later, but on, on my new record, um, on Playland Arcade, my solo record, I think there's a lot of the same kind of um, conceptualization of instrumentation, right? I, I fundamentally have rejected the notion that a bass part should be, quote unquote, should be one layer at the bottom that goes on after the drums, before the guitar, you know, uh, it, it, to, to support the vocal. Right. And if, if, you, if you listen to the tracks, the Dreadnought tracks, my solo tracks, if you listen to them on headphones, you know, the goal is to have this really you know, antiphonal stereo sense and in structure where your eyes and your ears are kind of going in different directions. <laughs> it's, a, it's a, it's a, right. And, and to use these contrasts in the textures and the sounds and the structure to, to create dynamism. And, uh, I, I mean, I don't think I've made a track in years that didn't have less than half a dozen bass parts on it. Right? Wow. I mean, it, it's just the way I, I conceive of it, the way I do it. And, um, and it's taken a long time to develop that. And, and the other guys in Dreadnought, you know, it's it's a similar thing, uh, of course. Um, but with the bass parts, it really is something something different and weird, which I don't hear very often in other people's recordings. No, that's for sure. And that, unfortunately, I think, um, you know, bass tends to get a little, a little lost in most bands. And I, I just don't hear really interesting. I don't want to say I don't, but it's it's you have to search out interesting prog stuff and i guess maybe you always you've always had to because it's never had the the you know outside of bands like rush and and yes it, it's its own thing and not everybody gets it or likes it so you have to really sift through music to try to find something that that you like because because prog there's, there's so many different variants of prog you know there's and and what somebody one prog 
genre, subgenre that somebody, that one person likes, a lot of other people might not. And it's, it's just a fascinating rabbit hole to go down. Oh man. So, so, okay. So there you go. You, you really, you really hit it, right? Like dreadnought should appeal to, in, in theory, should appeal to a, a big, a big chunk of people who like prog rock, but there's certain things about us that turns off a lot of a lot of the, the audience and that specifically is stuff like chicken picking guitar yeah. two steps um americana stuff that that is not identified with the kind of european tradition of, of quote-unquote european tradition of prog rock right. so what what i've always wondered what, about is for a, a submarket which is so interested in thinking about how expansive its mindset is it's awfully parochial when it comes down <laughs> to you know including yes. something that Right, like it's what? What? Like, aren't we supposed to be like the mind-expanding set here? But yeah. no, you know. And it's it's so interesting because I was saying to one of my uh, the guys that works for me today, and a good buddy of mine, a good buddy of about 20, 20 plus years, uh, we're talking about prog rock and stuff. And I mentioned the band Gentle Giant, who, which is one of my favorite bands. Oh, yeah, and I just yeah. I just had a correspondence with uh, Derek Shulman, the lead singer. Oh wow! And I just wrote him a I wrote him a quick note and just said, Hey, listen, man, you know. You've really um, been an inspiration to me over the years, and I wanted to sing you my new record. And, and the reason why is because, you know, Derek Shulman went from being the lead singer of a prog rock band to being a really successful uh, music label executive, right? I mean, he, oh, he wow. signed a, a lot of bands in the 80s. He broke a lot of groups. He signed Tears for Fears. He signed Bon Jovi. Oh, wow, uh, really? The I didn't sing- that. Yeah, yeah, man. And, and th- this guy, he's he was so shrewd and so smart, and he's such a, a, a wonderful operator, right? He wrote right back a couple minutes later, and he's like, "Oh, thanks, thank you so so much." And it was just wonderful to hear right back from one of your your heroes. But That's um, amazing. but I, yeah, but I was telling my, my my buddy about this, and I, I sent them a um, I sent them a video of these guys playing live. I'm like, "These guys never achieve mass success. You're about to see why." Right? <laughs> it, 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 I mean, it's just like this unbelievable concert where the musicianship is so out there. It's so incredible, but it incorporates, of course, like elements of medieval music, baroque music. All these things that a, a chunk of the prog rock audience is going to just turn their nose up at. Yeah. And and then plus the thing with a group like General Giant, you're like one letter off of Genesis and the record bands. I can't imagine how horrible that must have been going oh, through the 70s. God, <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, oh. so speaking of, of, of heroes and, and giants, you got a chance to work with some of your heroes. Uh, you've actually played with John Entwistle and, and you've done work with Pete Townsend. What, yeah. how did that happen? How do you, how do you end up getting to work with your, your heroes? Oh man, you know, life is strange, right? Yeah. Um, it, it, it really is. And I think, uh, I said this to the data, uh, a buddy, I said, if I could go back and tell the 12 year old me what's happened in my life, right? Like if I could just find a way to, to explain to him as he's picking up the bass, maybe not for the first time, but maybe, maybe I've been playing for six months or whatever. Yeah. Uh, if I, if I could say, Hey, listen, this is what's going to happen. First of all, He'd be pumped. He'd be like, "That's awesome." Second, he'd probably be like, "What took so fucking long?" Yeah, like, you know, what's your problem? Get your head out of your ass, man. You know, it's it's these one of these kind of twists and turns of life where you can just ram your head up against the wall repeatedly and never notice that. Oh, if you just went around the corner of the building, there's an open door. And, and I, I think that this is something I've seen over and over again in um, in life, in business, and music. You know, when you see a line, don't get in it because there might be a different way through. And it's human nature to go get in the line. And I think that the thing that I've always tried to do is to figure out, well, is there another way I can make this happen? With the episode thing, um, 
it was crazy because I really did just bang my head up against the wall, smashed my head up against the wall to quote his first solo record, right? <laughs> yeah. uh, for, for eight years, I tried to get a gig opening up for him, phone calls, emails, press kits. I mean, I did everything. And, uh, and, and I finally got the gig. Why did I get the gig? Because the venue where it was going to take place was owned by a guy for whom I, I was, I did a lot of favors and not because I wanted anything, but because he said, Hey, listen, I need you to, you know, fill in for a band next week. You guys free. Sure. We're free. Yeah. And, and when it's, when the time came for me to ask for a favor, I got it. And, um, and I got to play with my hero and, and hang out with my idol, which was, which was amazing. Like, I mean, Man. you know, it, 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 it was one of the last gigs he ever played. He died um, just a few months uh, after that, maybe seven or eight months after that. Wow. And so it was, it was really amazing. And, and to hear him play in, in the honor of having him hear me play, right. To stand on the side of the stage, he, you know, listen to my sound check, watch me play in, in, in the gig. Boy, that was, I mean, I'm just kind of looking off out my window right now, staring up thinking that was something special. Yeah. Um, and on, and on the, on the Pete side too, right. Like it, it was crazy. I, I could have spent my whole life trying to play based on a Pete Townsend record or, you know, ask him to co-write a song or whatever. I mean, if I, going that route, I mean, I, I could have done it and I, I did try to do it for sure. Right. But, you know, sometimes that's not the right way through. And it just so happened that, um, but he had a project that was, that was stalled and I could help and, you know, could, could help kind of close it out and, and bring it to market, which is wow. one of my specialties as a producer. Right. I mean, I, I, I finish things. You can, <laughs> you yes. alluded to how many credits I have in my resume. I tend to finish stuff. Yeah. And, and, you know, and again, it was one of those things where it's like, well, um, there's just a different way forward. And, and I've, I've said this many times in, in many different settings, but I remember walking up to Pete's door and uh, for the first time when I went to his house, because we, we had a, a difficulty. There was a problem that needed to be solved with our project. And, you know, he had a problem and I had to fix it. And I remember knocking on the door and as the door opens and I see Pete Townsend staring there, standing there in front of me. It went very quickly from this being from this being my hero to, you know, oh, my God, I love the guitar tone to this is my client. This is my artist. He has a problem and I have to fix it. And it was like, wow, like that, just like I, I had to flip a switch. And that's happened to me so many times in my life. And in fact, I really like to flip that switch because I, you know, people are put on pedestals. Celebrities are put on pedestals. Um, you probably know, and maybe your listeners know, I, I've, I've been working with Dan Brown, the author of The Da Vinci Code, for right. the last six years producing music. And, you know, and, and here's a guy who is on so many pedestals and there's so much pressure on him and so many perceptions about him. And it's just nice to move past that and to just get to the work. And yeah. and, and that's been my experience no matter who I work with. Um, I love to move past the ego. I, I put my ego in a very, very tiny or large box and I, I bury it. And, <laughs> and, I, and and that's what I expect everybody else to do. So we can do the thing that we're here to do, which is to do good work together. Um, yeah. And I, for, for, for me, that's been the key. Well, that's part of being a professional, you know, and it's, you're not there to fawn all, all over him. You're there to help him solve a problem. That's why he hired you. But that's like, I think it's like anything in life, right? I mean, it's just remembering that the other person on the other end of the line is just a, it's a real person. It's you. And, exactly. you know, everybody, um, I was reminded um, of, of what my dad told me once when I was, you know, thinking about all these problems. He said, listen, you've got a boat, you got boat problems. And it's really good advice. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what level you're at, right? I mean, yeah. whatever yeah. you got, if you got a cell phone, you get cell phone problems. Something's yeah. going to go wrong with whatever you got. So just deal with it and move on. Exactly. All right. Before we get into the, your album, I want to, ask you a question uh, based more on the parma side of things sure 
you do a lot of work with classical music and with, with streaming and, and the, the way the music industry has shifted, I've got a couple questions about classical music. First of all, is, what does the f- future look like right now for classical music as far as getting people to listen to it? And do you see a lot of young musicians uh, composing or playing classical or orchestral music these days? Well, I think I can answer the sec- the first question by answering the second. You know, okay. I, I think b- both are in many ways uh, identical, really. Uh, okay. So on the latter point, yes, I see an awful lot of really interesting stuff go on, right? I, I My company, we have our finger on the pulse. We have our ear to the ground. I'll, let's use every cliche in the book. We, we, <laughs> we, we, are pay- we are paying attention to everything all the time. And what's been really encouraging for me to see is, is a couple things. First of all, that more and more classical quote unquote ensembles, however you want to define them, quote unquote classical, quote unquote ensemble, they're acting like bands, right? String quartets, chamber groups, choirs, um, you know, all these different kinds of ensembles. They're no longer acting like what used to be a classical group. They're now understanding that, you know, we got to get out there. We got to, we got to pound the pavement. We got to do the things that a, a, a band would do. So, I'm happy to see this market that I love, to see the style of music that I love migrate towards where I was when I was a little kid. And I, I, I don't mean that to sound condescending at all, but okay. growing up as being a rock and roll kid, you yeah. get an understanding, like we said before, you got to put the posters up, right? Yeah, yeah. So so I'm seeing an awful lot of that. Um, I'm seeing an awful lot of, of desire in the part of younger composers to really do unusual things, to not be worried at all about what the barriers are, to not be worried at all about what the rules are, to not take their art so seriously. I think that is only a good thing. It makes me so, so happy, right? Yeah. I think to kind of address the first part of your question, um, or the first question is, it's going to take some time for this to wash out for the old stuff to wash out. And by that, I mean the kind of much more traditional don't clap between movements, um, you know, be, be, be quiet in your seat kind of experience. I think that, I mean, for better or for worse, that generation is dying out. Um, yeah. Financially, that generation has kept classical music afloat for a very, very long time. Yeah. And this is why I'm happy to see a much more entrepreneurial spirit amongst younger composers, younger performers, because there's now a greater understanding that, you know, we're no longer hogs at the trough, right? We can't just say we're going to play Beethoven and expect to get donor money and, and then keep doing it year over year over year. Right. And, right. and I guess the last broad thing I would say is we're seeing in classical music what's happening in the rest of the world, which is an understanding that there has been and there has always been uh, an inequity in the, the, in the market and in the system. And there have been so many voices neglected for so long. And when you think about the fact that you know, look, it's indisputable. Beethoven has some great music. He has some shit pieces too. He's got some great music. It's <laughs> it's, it's it's indisputable that Chopin was was a virtuoso. You know, beyond the beyond. But but those are are the the end result of of a winnowing process, which was determined by people who had certain vested interests. And now we're seeing that all being turned up in its head. And I am I am so happy, so unbelievably happy to see. Uh, what have been traditionally neglected minorities and neglected groups, you know, women, people of color, Asian Americans, et cetera, fill in the blank. These are the groups which are now coming to prominence. And guess what? These are the people who have something to say uh, of real interest. Because, you know, when I said before about going through the hammers of hell, perspective comes out of going through the hammers of hell. And everybody's sure. hammers are different. 
And it's just a matter of how you express it. So I think what we're seeing is to sum it all up, we're, we're certainly seeing um, a death of the old and, and, a, and a birth of the new. I hope to be the accelerant <laughs> on, on, on that process, um, because I really do think that a, a, a more informed, more egalitarian world is a better world. Yeah. Well, that's that's good news to hear you know that perspective on it, because it's, I don't know. I don't hear I'm not in that world. And, and uh, but I do love classical music and I like to hear new compositions. So that's that's really encouraging news. Well, I look, look, there's a couple of things to keep in mind here. When you think about the pandemic, the pandemic um, has accelerated everything. Right. Right. Brooks Brothers wasn't going to be a, a, a 500 year empire for God's sakes. I mean, right. people were going to stop wearing suits to work at a certain point. Right. But what was we were, what was going to be a 20 or 10 year cycle was compressed down to one or two. Um, we're, we're seeing the same thing, I think, in terms of the, the change in classical music, where, for example, one of the problems that we've always had is that there are a lot of reviewers who have no interest in touching digital products. In fact, that when uh, this has got to be 15 years ago, I um, kind of innovated this, this concept of bundling uh, the scores and parts of, of classical music along with a CD. Now, go figure, CD, right? You put right. the CD in, in the machine, yeah. and oh, guess what? It opens up an interface where you can access the score and parts. So if you buy the CD, you actually get the printed music. You don't have to go to the music publisher. That's amazing. right. So, 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 so this kind of thing, all of that was happening way back then that I was trying to get going. But the pandemic has radically accelerated that. In these reviewers now, for example, the press, they have no choice. You know, yeah. people people couldn't actually go anyplace to mail out physical product. Right. So, I, you know, I, I know the pandemic has been a horrific thing, but um, as a, it certainly has been horrific. But as I've right. described it to, to some folks, like if somebody comes up to me and they say, look, here's a giant wall size canvas and, and a thousand colors of paint, go paint your masterpiece. That's really hard. But if someone says, okay, I need a 15 second piece of music in the key of A minor and I need, the, uh, you know, three instruments, all acoustic, uh, go. And that's a way that's way easier to do, right? <laughs> and I, I think the pandemic has made all those, all those decisions and decisions and solutions for people that much more apparent. Um, your priorities become much more clear. And I think that in classical music, and I even think in other types, pop, you know, touring musicians, everybody's had to reckon with what the reality of the situation is. And yeah. I think that's only a good thing because it makes for a more malleable, flexible art in in group of artists. Well, you mentioned short songs, and I wanted to talk about your album, but I'm not sure how to qualify your album, your your this this new album that's coming out because yeah. Playland Arcade, it's being billed as your debut, but you've also done a an album of seven seven second songs. Yes, I did. I did. Yes. Which I don't know if we can consider an entire <laughs> album that's 49 seconds long as a debut album, but maybe I don't <laughs> I, I think it rather stretches the definition. But but yes, uh, yes, I, I had that in my mind. And just one day I was like, you know, fuck it, I'm going to do it. And, uh, and what's interesting is that um, it's only out on Bandcamp and it's not distributed on major digital platforms, which is why I'm considering Playland Arcade to be my debut. Okay. And the reason why is because it's too short. The songs are too short. <laughs> Spotify won't accept seven second songs. Really? Yeah. Um, there's there's certain issues with it. So, um, <laughs> yeah. So anyway, <laughs> I, I'm hoping to overcome that with the seven second song that's on my new album, but we'll cross that bridge later. But yeah, it's... Yeah. Uh, it's it's a fun record. It's a cool record. It's a producer's record for sure. It is. Uh, 
yeah, I, I'm, I hope you dig it. I hope you uh, had a fun time listening to it. I had a blast. It was so much fun. I, now, when we talk about a song on the show, I usually go back and post and I include like a 30-second clip of whatever song we're discussing. But that would cool. basically be your entire album. Exactly, right? Yeah. <laughs> so I don't know if, I can, if I'm going to be able to do that. I don't know. My, my, my show is on Spotify, and I, I, get, I get in trouble if I put an entire album up there as part of a podcast. I don't know, if I, I don't know what they would think. That's crazy. Am yeah, I allowed you know, to put an entire album, even if, you know, since it's only, it's under a minute long? Yeah, I say go for it. You know, I've <laughs> always believed that it's better to beg, beg for forgiveness than ask for permission. So go, go forth and conquer. I, as the creator, will, will, will bless you. I, I, I approve. All, you know, all joking aside, that's got to be challenging to write, you know, a, a really interesting seven second song. Yes, I think short music is incredibly challenging for the exact reasons I described before. The constraints are so tight that you have to make certain decisions and it, it, it's a finite universe, right? Yeah. And, um, and, 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 you know, I've always loved short tunes. I love, I love long tunes, too. Like you mentioned Taking a Ride with the Fat Man before. Yeah. Like, like the last tune on... Um, on uh, hard charging mummies of the Kaaba Sikanti. That's, that's a big ass epic. Oh yeah. In fact, the, the, the new dreadnought record, which comes out later this summer, it really is basically one 34 minute piece of music. It's, oh. it's just split up into movements, right? Like oh, it's cool. all instrumental, but it's, but it's one thing, but yeah, I've always appreciated this kind of, uh, short taste in, in the, in the fast, um, Amus bouche to kind of cleanse the palate <laughs> and whatever. Right. Yeah. Uh, and, and I think there's a lot of that on Philly and arcade and, and I like contrast. I like confusing people. I like to be confused. I like to be spun around and just disoriented and then have to figure out my way out. And I think this record, it's kind of the audio version of doing that to a listener. You know what? I was just, I was actually just kind of talking with somebody about that the other, uh, last week in a podcast format. You have uh, guests on, you have, you basically have one host and a producer or a co-host or something. and one of them sets everything up, but the host has no idea what's going on during the podcast. I think that would be hilarious. You have a, you know, the topic, the, he has no idea what the topic is until the podcast starts. I adore it. I, I, I think that's brilliant. I think you should totally do it. It's fantastic. <laughs> I mean it. I love that stuff, right? That, that's the fun stuff. That's oh, when yeah. the good stuff happens, you know? And, and it's like, look, being a producer of anything, whether it's a podcast or a record, it's about creating certain conditions. And the conditions that you create, those determine what the output is. Now, you can really determine what the output is by the conditions you create. So it all depends what you want to do. And and to achieve a certain effect, you know, whether it's surprise or calm or whatever, that's the producer's job. So I think it's a brilliant idea. I think you should do it. Oh, I, I'm going to have to try to 
figure out who to get involved on that one. But all right, so let's get, actually get to your album, Playland Arcade. I man, I'm telling you, it's when you say it's a it's a ride, it really is. You've got some awesome stuff. Like like okay, I'll I'll throw out some of the ones that that are my favorites, like Fredo and Siege are yeah. awesome. They, they sound like they're 8-bit video game jams. idea they're they're awesome and i love that i remember about a year ago hearing some somebody on youtube doing like an eight bit version of stairway to heaven or something and i thought it was hilarious (laughs) i love it and and then i hear frido and and siege and i'm like that this is cool this is instead of somebody doing an eight bit cover of somebody you're jamming in eight bit world and it's it's really cool Right. I mean, I love it. I, I think it's it's fun and funky. And those two that you picked there are interesting because those are the first and the last tracks in the record. Right. Those yeah. are the bookends. And, and for your listeners, you know, it's it's really the the sound of the boardwalk. Right. So I live in a in a beach in a beach town. Okay. And we we've got our boardwalk. We've got our fried dough. We've got our ski ball. We've got it. We've got the whole bit. Right. And, and this album is kind of the story of one of those days that I, I mean, I've been going to speech since I was a little kid. I've been going to the Playland Arcade, which is the name of the arcade down at the beach right down the road from me oh, awesome. since, since I was a little boy. I take my staff up uh, up until this past year with the pandemic. I, I've been taking my staff out there every summer for, you know, uh, for, for boardwalk day. We go and I, I give money and we go play video games. And we have a oh, great time. Awesome. And, and and those two tracks that you just identified, I think, are the two that really, um, they bookend the record, and I think they certainly sum up the record um, quite well. Man, you're making me want to work for you. Jeez. <laughs> I do my best. <laughs> <laughs> no, but there's also a, a, such a wide variety of sounds, and you've got like a surf western sound on Backward Swan and Western Vice. There's bits that sound like they're out of soundtrack, like Lobster Roll. Yeah. Um, tenderly. Sounds like it could have been on David Lynch's Lost Highway. Very cool, yeah. And you know, rest in peace, Walter Okowitz, the great went. Yeah, yeah. He, he passed away, I guess, today or last night. Really? Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. Oh. Yes, if you like Twin Peaks, the guy, yeah, sure. The great went. I'm as blank as oh. a fart. I am as blank as a fart. Okay, well, all right. He passed I'm, away. Bowman of silence, jeez. Pity. Okay. And then there's the, the songs that should be mandatorily played where I live. I live just outside of Washington, D.C. 
Fanfare for a losing team. Yep. That should be played at FedEx Field and Capital One Arena until either either the Washington football team, whatever they're going to call themselves, and the Wizards can do something. They should. It, it should be mandatory that Fanfare for a losing team plays From in you. those stadiums. to god's ears man i totally agree <laughs> I, I, i'd love those royalties too that would be delightful that would be awesome but uh, my favorite i think my favorite track on the entire album is mighty forces mm. because when that when the the violin starts playing and then the drum just kicks in underneath it it's just amazing it's so powerful you know I, I thank you for bringing that one up because that's a really weird tune in some ways and it's weird because it's the most simple in some in some respects okay and like there's another element of this record that I was really going for, which is kind of like this concept of minimalist maximalism, right? Okay. I think like Siege does it quite a bit too. And and it's a, there's a lot on this record, which is very static and very kind of basic in its own way, but it's also super ultra complicated and detailed at the same time. And, and what I really tried to do in Mighty Forces is it's just four chords, right? Mm-hmm. Over and over and over and over and over again. I tried to think like what would Ravel do and to some degree <laughs> if he if he had a synthesizer and, and a and a kick ass drummer and violin player. <laughs> that's uh, awesome. You know, and, and that's that's one of those tracks. And um Andy uh, Happel, the violin player, uh, Andy and I have been playing together for years. He's a wonderful engineer. He's worked for my company. I've played in his band. We're really good buddies. And we actually have a new project that we're about to start, which I shouldn't say anything about, but uh, but that's going to be really cool. And then Jamie Perkins, the, the drummer on that, um, man, he plays a storm. And yes. uh, he, he's just a, uh, an incredible, incredible player. So this idea of like, you know, repetitive, minimalists, like Steve Reich-esque, almost whatever loops and, and patterns with this chaotic violin and drum. Um, there was something in my head there, and, and I just, I really like it. It's a real kind of emotional uh, apex of the record. And uh, yeah, I, I'm, I'm glad you dig it. I love it. And I was walking around work today and Yo Soy Miguel was just, I was just walking around just like, Yo Soy Miguel. And I'm like, why? I'm, always, I'm, I'm really sorry about that. I'm sorry. <laughs> People are looking at me like, you're not Miguel. What are you? Your name is Mark. But the thing that I, the, the, and I'm, I'm not even joking about that. That's, uh, that's actually a true story. But I, I'm, I'm hearing this from more and more people because guess what? It happened to me, and that's why I recorded the fucking thing. Was because I was walking around. <laughs> Jesus, I had to get it out of my head, you know? Well, one of my favorite parts is, is, and I don't know if this was intentional or not, because this whole album, outside of three words, Yo Soy Miguel, it's an instrumental right. album. And you've got a song called Last Word. Yep. And it, on it, which 
on an instrumental album, I think is hilarious, but it's not even the last song, <laughs> which, oh, yeah. which makes it even better for me. I, I love that. Yeah, you're finding all my layers here. Uh, I'm happy. Thank you. Uh, the last word is also um, perhaps my favorite cocktail of all time. So it, it works on many, many levels. Oh, nice. Nice. Okay, so I have one more question for you. True. I'm trying to look at the artwork on my phone while I'm working on this. So it's, it's not easy for me to, to pinpoint everything. But is every song referenced in the artwork? I think they're all in there. That's Maybe, pretty awesome. I think, I think there's 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 some yeah. I, I think there's at least oblique angles to everything in there, and the the artwork is is terrific. Uh, guy that did it is a guy by the name of Edward Fleming. He works at my company, um, and we did this one on the side because I have my little uh, policy of separation of church and state, where right. you know Parma is not for my not not for my music, and my music is not for Parma. Right, um, right. But 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 he did a uh, he did a fantastic job, and. And, you know, there's a couple of the people, I, I think, just to kind of call them out where I had the chance that really sure. made a big impression on this record. But one, of course, is uh, Jamie Perkins, the drummer I mentioned before. And he plays on a great band called The Pretty Reckless. Uh, and they just were at the top of the Billboard charts about a month ago. And they're they're just kicking oh. ass and they're a great group. And I'm, I'm so happy that he was, um, you know, able and willing to play on the record because he brought this whole thing to a completely different dimension, in my opinion. And, um, and I made sure that he really gave it his all. And, you know, at one point he, he played, um, he played one of my tracks and he did it like, as I had it in the demo and he's like, what do you think? And, and I basically said, you, you know, you, you played what I had, but you didn't play what I wanted. I want you. Right. And, uh, and, and I, I told him, I said, you know, play like a petulant child, play like an angry petulant child. He looked at me, he's just like, that's the stupidest production direction I've ever heard. Well, he went back in there and he did a take and the take was what you heard on Yo Soy Miguel. So there you go. Oh, that's uh, awesome. So it was good. it was good production direction. Yes. Um, and and then my buddy Duncan Watt, who plays keys uh, and advice on a lot of this stuff, you know, he really did a a, a great job on this. Um, he plays on uh, a bunch of the tracks tenderly and, and and a bunch of stuff. And he's just really a wonderful composer, wonderful musician, one of the best I've ever worked with. And then the, and really like my real partner in crime in this was John Wyman, the engineer. John is also a brilliant producer. We've been working together on a ton of stuff. He did all the dreadnought stuff you mentioned. Um, okay. The, uh, the EPs, Hard Charging, he did our new record, which is coming out this summer, which is called uh, Northern Burner. He also produced the Pretty Reckless record, which, again, Billboard chart-topping uh, engineer-producer uh, this guy is. So um, I really had an all-star team to make this happen. And, and what was enjoyable for me about the whole thing, kind of in summary, was I allowed myself to put down my instrument. And I only, I'm only playing on half, maybe less than half of the record. Oh, really? And, yeah, I, I really made a choice to to be less um, commanded by my own hands and allow my ideas to work through other people. And, and it's interesting. I think before I, before I really kind of matured as a CEO and as a manager, I probably never would have done that artistically, right? Like the learning how to work through other people, learning how to um, give other people agency so that they can bring what they do to what you do. Yeah. That kind of, I guess it kind of spilled over from the business into my art. And I said, you know, I, I'm really content to hand stuff to, uh, an orchestra or to a drummer or a keyboard player and, and not have anything to do with it and say, listen, this is my idea. You go crazy. Um, and so, it, <laughs> you know, it's really, it really gratifying. That is wonderful, man. And it's good to learn that. And, you know, at some point, I mean, one of these days I'm hoping that, uh, I get busy enough where I can hand off some of the duties of this podcast to somebody. Cause right now it's, just, yeah. it's just me. I'm doing oh, everything, but 
I have, I've kept it for a while then. Thank you so much. I've really enjoyed the album. It's, it's got so many twists and turns and different sounds. It's, it's really fun to listen to. Well, I really appreciate it. And uh, it's been a pleasure. And thank you so much for paying attention to the music, studying it. And, uh, and most importantly, laughing at it. I really appreciate it. <laughs> well, it was my pleasure. And <laughs> Awesome. Oh, and be- before we, we go, did almost forget to ask you, how can people find the album? Where can they find it? How can they order it? Follow you on, on social media to find out what you're up to? Yep. Uh, so you can find me online at boblordmusic.com. That's my solo site. Uh, my company is at parmarecordings.com, P-A-R-M-A. My band, Dreadnought, we're at dreadnoughtrock.com. And my new album, Playland Arcade, solo record, my my first other than my 49-second debut <laughs> album, which is not able to be distributed, uh, is available on all major digital platforms on April 27. And um, I have no physical product coming out because as a record label owner, I have enough that I could make a large four, which would never be penetrated. <laughs> Well, it's, you know, it's weird because I, I am a tactile person. I love having physical bits of, I love the artwork. I love, I love being able to touch something, but I'm finding it harder and harder to find things to play my physical copies of stuff on, you know, I I had to get a new car recently and no CD player. Yeah. Right. I got a right. I got a new laptop to to edit this podcast with and to do my photography with. No disc player. I I love physical copies, but people are companies are forcing me into into unphysical media. I know, I know. You know, listen, it's it's difficult, right? I I'm a tactile guy as well. I I read physical books. Yeah, I, me I tried too. to read I tried to read a, a Kindle. Couldn't do it. Oh, um, where's my know, eyes I'm, out? I can't do it. Absolutely. But I like to reference back and all the stuff. I love to read liner notes. I miss liner notes. I miss booklets. I I miss all of this stuff. And I think the bigger issue is that there's going to be a time in our history which will be blank for data because we don't have any physical document of it. And, and, And my concern is that data loss in a digital capacity might be, you know, the, the data corruption over time. And I mean, like, you know, hundreds of years. It might be such that, you know, we might not be able to obtain or, or keep the records that we had in a prior time yeah. um, because because of the fact that we would write in diaries and write each other notes and letters and stuff. Right. Yeah. It's, it's a whole different world, man. But like I said, yeah. many times I grew up learning how to type on a typewriter. So what do I know? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I thought having a word processor was amazing. <laughs> exactly. Man. All right, man. I, I appreciate it. And- oh, dude, absolutely. No, I, I really appreciate it. And uh, keep up the great work. And I really, I'm thankful for the opportunity. So thanks a million. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. 
FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 